Good evening. This is Cinema 60. جعفر خويا جعفر اسمعني راهم يقولوا لك لي بارالو كما تحبج راهم يعملوا بومبا في الحومة ويهدموها كامل تقدري تقولي لهم لي ينجموا يهدموا الدنيا كامل اللي يلبغوا راكي تسمعي جعفر احبطي إلا ديك نسوغون با بوي فير تو سوتي سي بون فارجوان دغلي سوتر بريبار لو بلاستيك يلفو لو متر لو بلو بري بوسيبل دو لا كاشيت مي نو بخوني با تريسك اون ميش لونغ اون لا كوبرا ابري بو دو كوبري لو en tirant alternativement pendant qu'il travaille. Allez. Hi, Bart. Hi, Jenna. It's a guest episode. It's our first in a while. It is, and it's exciting. And this is uh, a friend of yours, too, right? This is Christopher J. Lee. Yeah, don't forget the J when you're looking him up, because then you'll end up with that guy who played uh, Dr. Fu Manchu in all those movies. <laughs> <laughs> same guy? That's not the same yeah. guy. Uh, no, this is uh, Christopher J. Lee. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. Hey. Chris is a true man of the world. He doesn't seem to call any particular country or city his home for very long. Um, he, uh, but his heart does seem to reside in uh, in the continent of Africa, and that's his uh, his area of expertise. He's a professor of American history, world history, and African literature at the Africa Institute in Sharjah in uh, the United Arab Emirates. Uh, he's also a non-resident fellow of the W.E.B. Dubois Research Institute at the Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research at Harvard. Uh, he's also published several books. Seven? Is it seven? Yeah, it's, uh, seven yeah. books. And um, they, they tend to revolve around imperialism in Africa, uh, colonialism. And you know, why, why, don't you, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what, your, what your books are all about? Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me to your program, your podcast. I'm excited to be here. I should say quickly, too, that I, I went to college with Bart, so maybe I'm sort of an insider to the podcast, but nonetheless, I appreciate the invitation. Well, I'll let you talk about your, your background, and then I'll, I'll t tell everybody how this, this podcast came to be. Sure. Yeah, so, so I'm a professor of African history. Um, I, have a, I have a PhD from uh, Stanford I've been teaching for about 20 years now, and I've, I've uh, over that time, I've published seven books on, on different aspects of 20th century African history, as well as global history. Um, much of my work is in South Africa and uh, Southern Africa, but I've also done a lot of work on decolonization starting in the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s. So this leads to my strong interest in films like The Battle of Algiers, and also Black Girl by uh, Usman Sinbain. You know, I, I approach these films as as documents of this of this period of the 1960s and the the different kinds of political changes that were happening in different parts of Africa at that time. So yeah, my curiosity and research interest really gravitates to issues of decolonization and anti-colonialism during the, the mid to late 20th century. And when uh, I ran into Chris recently for the first time in about 30 years <laughs> and, and, and found out what, uh, what his area of expertise is, I immediately thought, I've got to get this guy on Cinema 60 to talk about Battle of Algiers because it is arguably one of the most important movies of the 60s, but 
I don't have the kind of knowledge I think that, that might be necessary to really fully appreciate this film. So I didn't really want to get to this movie before I had somebody on the show who could actually, you know, explain it a little bit and, and, uh, and talk about what's, what's happening on the screen. I mean, in, in essence, it's a, you know, it's just a, a movie about guerrilla warfare and, um, it's set in the very the beginnings of the Algerian War, the the Algerian uprising in the mid fifties, and um, and there's it helps to know the context of this movie to really to get a lot out of it. So I think I said I think I said to you right away, hey, have you seen the Battle of Algiers? And you uh, told me that you actually teach the movie. So yeah. so it was you uh, right away in the back of my mind to to get you on here to talk about it. You just said, Chris, about decolonization being very important to the mid-century, and I'd really love to hear, I mean, I know it's like kind of hard to be like, sum that up in one minute, but <laughs> you have more than a minute, but I, I would be really curious to just hear in general, uh, you know, your take on, on the mid-century and why this is, why, why it is that this is so fascinating to you. Well, that's its own podcast, but <clears throat> I mean, to put it very briefly, today we live in a world of nation states. Most of these nation states came into being after 1945. So after the Second World War, after the formation of the United Nations, and these countries in Africa, Asia, Middle East, effectively came into being um, through a process of decolonization. I should say quickly that there's a lot of work on this topic for, for that very reason. Basically, during the mid-20th century, there was a transition away from empires to a world of empires, to a world of nation states. And there's a lot of debate about you know, how that happened, the reasons for it, uh, why empires collapsed, you know, what were the methods of decolonization, like arms struggle, like what, we, like what you see in the Battle of Algiers um, versus a kind of negotiated end, which is what you see in other countries. Yeah, I mean, I mean it should be said too that you know, the United States is a good example of decolonization. I mean, it was... Um, an example from the, the late 18th century, there's the case of Haiti, also in the late 18th century, and then in South America during the 19th century, you have all these countries becoming independent. So decolonization as a process isn't necessarily specific to the 20th century, but you simply had a certain scale and escalation of decolonization during the 20th century that is unparalleled compared to preceding centuries. So to understand global politics during the 20th century, you have to understand decolonization at some level. And it's still going on to a certain degree in you know, Israel and Palestine and, and Absolutely. Uh, Russians trying to do in Ukraine. Absolutely. It's, 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 it's interesting how over the past decade or so, it's the, the term decolonization has reentered political discourse in different ways. And I mean, certainly you see it in cases like uh, the West Bank and Palestine vis-a-vis -vis Israel, but it's also come up with uh, you know First Nations, that is Native American communities in North America, whether Canada or the United States, you know, calling their situation a colonial one. Of course, this is a long recurrent theme within Native American histories, so I don't want to say it's it's a completely new idea, but there's been a revival of of the discourse of decolonization. Vis-a-vis um, -vis Native American peoples and, and First Nation peoples in, in North America, Australia, and other parts of the world, there's also a discourse of decolonization with regards to education and with regards to museums. 
and you know how do we decolonize you know the British Museum for example which is an artifact of the British Empire right or the Museum of Men in France or you know all this all these questions about antiquities and then there are other things too like you know re, re uh, rethinking uh, university curricula and getting more non-western perspectives into the requirements for university students and younger. So it's interesting because, I mean, you know, going back to, you know, college and going back to Bowdoin, I mean, in some ways, my thinking on this goes back to that time, but it was in a very different, it, it it was with a different terminology. It was with the terminology of political correctness, a terminology of multiculturalism, so nobody talked about decolonization at Bowdoin during the 1990s, but in a sense, it's the same spirit. It's the idea of rethinking the canon, you know, rethinking what should be taught, what should be learned. So as a teacher, I'm very committed to decolonizing knowledge, you know, sort of having students move away from um, Western or European or white American epistemologies to instead understand other sources of knowledge, whether it's from South Africa or South Asia or the Middle East. And I should say quickly, too, that I don't claim expertise in all these things either. I mean, I also am still very much a student in this regard, in part because, you know, just the world is so vast and it's it's hard to, you know, grasp everything. But from a political and intellectual standpoint, I'm I'm committed to that idea of decentering uh, Western knowledge. Uh, That's it's funny because you know we've actually run into this with uh, Cinema Sixty, where we're trying to yeah. look for African movies to to watch, and, and you know the way that we usually do the show is that we're picking like six to seven movies, we're watching them all on a theme, and then we're going to discuss them. But uh, I mean, number one, there there weren't that many movies being made out of Africa versus say the United States. Uh, Egypt uh, obviously had a Uh, had a massive amount, which uh, we did talk about. But I mean, even then, just finding stuff that had actual translations, I mean, half the time we're using fan translations, but even getting access to these films, is just so hard. And, and, you know, that in itself, I I wish that it was more accessible, especially after that uh, Egyptian episode that we did, where we loved every single movie that we chose. And, And granted, I think we chose a bunch of well known and, you know, celebrated films which is probably the only reason that we could find it and could get translations for it. Uh, but yeah, I think about that all the time. It's like, it's just, it's hard to, to get your hands on stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. The, the history of film in Africa is, is it's, obviously there are scholars who have written on this. And as you might expect, I mean, the, the history of film in Africa, um, including North Africa, i.e. Egypt, um, it closely tracks what's going on politically. That is to say, during the colonial period, or say during the apartheid period in South Africa, film is often in the service of justifying the existing political order. Um, not always, but you know, it's just to give one very brief example, and I, I realize this is a slight digression from the Battle of Algiers, but it might provide some context. In, in in South Africa, there was a film in Afrikaans called The Vore Truckers. And Vore Trucker is a, is a term for a settler. So The Vore Truckers, this Afrikaans lang- language film that also had some English translation as well, was basically a, a settler colonial film 
about settlers going into the interior of South Africa. Um, pro, so it's a, a pro-settler film? Yes, pro-settler. Oh, okay. So basically okay. this film was reinforcing this mythology of Manifest Destiny, that white settlers were entitled to go into the interior and settle South Africa, very much in parallel with the kind of mythology that also informed Western expansion in the United States during the 19th century. So the point being that one of the earliest films in South Africa, one of the earliest films in Africa was this film used to justify settler colonial expansion. Um, in many ways, it's it's like a fascinating parallel to Birth of a Nation. I was just going to say. Yeah, it's the same idea of film being used for a nefarious purpose, being simultaneously extremely innovative, but also deeply problematic. Right. And you just have these, you know, you have this these black characters in the film that are very, very stereotyped. One character is a Zulu character who discovers Christianity. Another character is this nefarious Zulu king who betrays uh, the goodwill of white settlers. So it's, it's just this problematic film. Jump to the 1950s. You have a film version of Cry the Beloved Country, which is this white liberal story, originally a novel by Alan Payton, that's about how white and black South Africans can you know, find a sense of conviviality, but it does it in such a way that white South Africans don't really confront or or concede any guilt for the kind of violence and and, and domination that, that has informed South African history. Is that in the source material? Is that in the novel? Or is it, that's exclusive to the film? It's it's both. I mean, I think the the the... My sense, I mean, the film itself is with Sidney Poitier. Um, it's an interesting film in terms of thinking about Poitier's career and the kind of projects that he was involved in. I mean, obviously, the, you know, there were few uh, opportunities for Black actors. You know, he plays a Black minister who basically finds a kind of Christian humanism as a way of reconciling the the kind of racial tensions and problems and disparities that that existed in South African society. And the upshot is that critics of the film, critics of the book, think it's too conciliatory, that there's this, uh, what do I want to call it, a resolution through a kind of common Christian humanity that doesn't quite compensate for you know, centuries of land dispossession, class inequality, poverty. It's a, it's a, it's a long debate, but simply to say that most people frame the, that novel and that film in a liberal framework. That is to say that if black and white South Africans sim- could simply just find the humanity in one another, that we'll arrive at a better place. And this is quite different from the kind of radical politics that took hold during the anti-apartheid struggle that we're not simply calling for racial conviviality, but we're calling for the overthrow of the government, the overthrow of the economic system that had been exploiting the black majority for several centuries. So, you know, you, you have a much more radical political viewpoint within the African National Congress and the South African Communist Party, as you might imagine. This also segues, in fact, to the Battle of Algiers, which is also, you know, very much a radical film. 
Um, I And, you know, just to extend what you were saying, Bart, I mean, I would say, to me, it's one of the most important films of the 20th century. I mean, fil- cinematically, I mean, in terms of craft, I think, you know, it's a culmination of certain filmmaking techniques that were happening during the 50s and early 60s that is trying to bring a sense of realism um, to filmmaking. You know, you see that in Italian neorealism, but also say the, you know, the kind of documentary films, the the cinema verite that, that was going on in the United States and continue to happen for that matter after 66 um, when the Battle of Algiers was released. But I think also another, another reason why I think it's an important film is just it's Ponte Corvo was thinking about issues that were global, that, you know, he was engaging with a politics that, again, was speaking to the time. And it, to me, it's, it's very much a convergence of, you know, a film with a certain political moment and a certain zeitgeist. And I think, I think it's just, it's just powerful for that reason, that, that convergence. And well, it sounds like right now is a good time for us to, to actually talk about the battle of Algiers. I can sum up what it's about. It's it's uh, basically well. I, I already started a little bit, but it's um, it is it's a very it's a documentary style docudrama uh, about the uprisings in in Algiers that were happening starting in uh, 1954. You know, and it goes into great detail about how these guerrilla cells in in the Casbah region of uh, of Algiers uh, worked, and so we see you know we see various leaders of of the um of the rebellion who you know are sort of at the top of the pyramid but but they each have uh you know their own group of cells that are all operating sort of independently and they start by shooting policemen french policemen who are patrolling in algiers in response the french police you know wall off the uh the muslim section of of algiers and uh you know they're trying to prevent more, you know, guerrilla warfare, terrorist attacks on on the French people, and uh, you know they're they're people slipping through. the The women, uh, you know, have started to you know dress European, take off their uh, their burkas, and pass through the lines into the the European part of the city, and uh, you know they bring bombs with them, and and you know blowing up nightclubs filled with French people, and uh, and cafes, and and that sort of thing. So the French army comes in, led by a, uh, a Colonel Mathieu. He is uh, a ruthless strategist and, uh, you know, one by one, picks apart these, these various guerrilla cells. And, uh, you know, eventually he uh, manages to, to whittle these, uh, you know, this guerrilla infrastructure. I hate to use the word terrorist because yeah, let me ju- yeah, I was gonna negative say connotations you you will you could be criticized for that well that's that's the language that the french are using yes that's the french way of looking at things Mm -hmm. i do want to just point out that this was um co-written and it's directed by an italian 
who is Gilo Ponte Corvo. Yeah. So this is also like neorealist uh, inspiration. Yeah. Is that's definitely coming from yeah. that from Italy direct. Uh, and there's even an, an Ennio Morricone soundtrack. Yeah. yeah, Chris, I'd love to hear more about the the historical context for this film, and yeah. then also your your take on this film. Well, let me just say something quickly about Ponte Corvo. I mean, Ponte Corvo um, was a member of the Communist Party in Italy. I don't know about Morricone. That would be fascinating if he was a member of the Communist Party, given his, uh, you know, famed career. But let me just say quickly that Italy has a strong and very fascinating history of communism and, and Marxist thought. Antonio Gramsci is this Italian Marxist thinker. He's one of the most important Marxist thinkers of the of the 20th century. This is all to say that Ponte Corvo comes from a very strong Marxist political background and, and Marxist tradition. So in that sense, it, you know, the politics of the Battle of Algiers is, is very clear to me. I mean, he's very concerned with ultimately the, the plight of ordinary Algerians. And you see this especially in the final moments of the film, which to me are always powerful. Um, I don't I, I don't know if I should I, I shouldn't get to the ending now. I'd love to get to the ending at some point just because it's just a powerful ending in a way of it, it, it's really where Ponte Corvo plants his flag and, you know, expresses the, the message that he that he wants to. I think we can we can get into the ending because, you know, Algeria is an independent nation now. Yeah. so We all know the ultimate outcome <laughs> although the the movie does end in a in a until the coda of the the film it, it's not a, not a very positive ending the french soldiers do defeat the leaders of the algerian resistance and um they think they've you know quashed the rebellion that they uh you know that this this is over and that you know yeah. the french have nothing to worry about anymore but uh, but there is a coda that's that's really powerful yeah let me let, let me and, jump in just just quickly because I think there's some important things that, that should be said. First of all, the, the film title is The Battle of Algiers. It should be said quickly that there actually was a Battle of Algiers that lasted for about three years from, from 54 to 57. That is to say that this wasn't just some sort of uh, fantasy reconstruction of the Algerian revolution that Ponte Corvo did. Um, it is, in fact, based on actual historical events. Um, there, there really was a Battle of Algiers. Stepping back from that, just to give a greater sense of context, the Algerian War or the Algerian Revolution, um, which Algerians prefer to call it, was from 1954 to 1962. So it was long. It was eight years. Um, it should be said that it followed in the wake of the conflict, the war in Indochina, which was basically from 46 to 54. During that time, you have the Vietnamese um, under the leadership of Ho Chi Minh, also fighting the French and eventually defeating the French at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in North Vietnam. That happened in 54. And the reason I bring that up is that it was a powerful moment because it was an example of basically this third world guerrilla army defeating a European power and doing it in a fashion that was complete. Like the French were defeated in such a way that they had to, they, they left Indochina. So 
What's important here, too, is that with the defeat of the French in Vietnam, the Algerians, who had also had discontent, their their long grievances since the mid-19th century when Algeria was first settled by the French, basically the, the National Liberation Front, the FLN, which is the, the party that features in the Battle of Algiers, they started their armed struggle in 1954, immediately following Dien Bien Phu. In other words, the Algerians were directly inspired by the Vietnamese. This is a good example of an empire that is the French Empire starting to buckle under the pressures of resistance, anti-colonial resistance, and armed struggle. The French paratroopers do make specific reference to that in this yes. film. They say, we're not going to let that happen again. We're yes. going to, to handle this uprising completely differently. Exactly. And this is, this is, this is also, again, this is, this is how good Pontecorvo was. You know, Pontecorvo is pointing to, again, this broader context. That's what makes this film, you know, why some people call it a film of third world revolution, because in many ways, this film is allegorical about what's going on in different parts of the French Empire, but also other empires. The other thing I would say quickly, too, just for context, is the fact that Algeria, it had a special status within the French Empire. In fact, Algeria was considered a part of France. And there were some, like de Gaulle, I'm not going to be able to quote him, but, but Charles de Gaulle basically said something to the effect that the Mediterranean cuts between France and Algeria in the same way that the, the River Seine cuts, cuts through Paris. The idea that even though you have this sense of division due to this body of water, it's the same place, it's the same entity. So even from even though today, you know, Algeria and France seem very different in the French imagination, Algeria and France were one and the same. And this was also, I should say, from a, a technical standpoint, that is to say, a legal standpoint. But this also gets to the content of the film where the colonel, you know, sort of even though they're French paratroopers, that is to say, French soldiers they treat it as a police operation. I think they actually call it that in the film. This is also why they resort to certain techniques like torture, you know, interrogation and so forth that are not permitted through uh, the Geneva agreements about the laws of war. Like you can't, you can't torture foreign soldiers. Um, But if it's a police operation, you can, you can do that to your own citizens, basically. Sounds like here. Yeah, which is screwed up, of course. But the upshot is that it, the, the, the Algerian situation was a very complex and unique situation that the French handled in a particular way that was you know, violent, that was with a tremendous amount of disregard for Algerians. That's why you have those scenes of setting up fencing in the Kasbah and dividing Algiers into different sections you know, people going through security checks. This is also why the Battle of Algiers experienced a revival shortly after 9-11. Like Dick Cheney and, and, you know, members of the Bush administration were looking back at the Battle of Algiers to, you know, understand how to deal with, you know, dangerous Muslims, you know, Muslim terrorists. And and it's it's just a... Wow. Yeah, it's there, there's actually an addition. It could be an, an addition of the criterion... Um, 
release of the Battle of Algiers, but but there actually is, uh, I think, an interview with Donald Rumsfeld, like really screwed up, but what I would call a wild misinterpretation of the film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trying to learn counterterrorism from Ponce Corvo, which is absolutely the last thing that Ponce Corvo would want to have as a lesson for his film. I really, it felt like he was telling communists how to act in Italy is really how it felt to me watching this. It felt definitely, yeah, yeah. as you're saying. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, let me say this quickly, and this goes back to, to what you were saying earlier, Bart. I mean, there, there's definitely, I know the term both sides is a very charged one these days because of, you know, the way, People of news organizations have reported the Trump administration and all sorts of things. But essentially, there's a both sides quality to the Battle of Algiers midway in the film where you have, you know, French paratroopers rounding up and searching possible terrorist Algerians. But then on the other hand, you have Algerians, you know, setting off bombs like at the Milk Cafe that result in civilian deaths. And it's it's a violence that goes both ways. And I think Ponte Corvo's message there isn't so much about you have to pick a side or one side is more correct than the other or both sides are guilty. I think what he's really trying to do is to say that colonialism itself is a situation of violence, that both sides are dehumanized. And the only way out, the only way possibly to humanize yourself paradoxically, is to embrace violence, to, you know, struggle for your humanism, to fight for your humanism, even if that means committing acts of violence against other people. And I think Ponte Corvo himself would say, yes, this is a distorted way of, of understanding things, but this is the nature of colonialism where both sides are dehumanized, um, where both sides are willing to commit acts of violence against other human beings. And I should say quickly that one of the reasons that I take this interpretive position is because it's also very much the kind of interpretation that, that Franz Fanon expressed in his book, The Wretched of the Earth. Franz Fanon is somebody, he was a black psychiatrist from Martinique. He went on to fight for the Algerians uh, during the Algerian revolution. Um, he was a member of the FLN and he wrote uh, a classic work of the Algerian Revolution, but also Third World Revolution and Decolonization called The Wretched of the Earth. It's published in 1961, a year before Algeria's independence. Fanon died short died of cancer, actually in Washington, D.C., shortly after its publication. And so for that reason, Fanon is also seen as a martyr, as as uh, you know, somebody who died. I mean, it's true, he died before he could see Algeria and achieve its independence. So his book, The Wretched of the Earth, is very much about the dehumanization of decolonization, the violence of decolonization. To me, The Battle of Algiers is very much a Fanonian film. Fanon's book, The Wretched of the Earth, was published in 61. Battle of Algiers came out in, in um, uh, 66. So it's, I think it's entirely possible and, and more than likely that Ponte Corvo certainly knew of Fanon and, and most likely read Fanon as well. What do you know about the author of the book that this movie is based on, who actually appears, yes. the author appears in this film as one of the FLN leaders? Yeah, Yes, Yosef, I believe is his, his name. 
Um, he was a member of, of the FLN and wrote a memoir of the Algerian Revolution of the Battle of Algiers, and he acted in the film. He went on to be in post-colonial Algerian politics. I don't know too much about his biography, except that it is an example that, you know, Ponte Corvo was really going to the source and, you know, wanting to, you know, involve people who were active in the struggle. I mean, I, w- I was fascinated by this movie. I had never seen it before. I think, Bart, really? you've seen it, obviously. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I've i heard of it, but um, I, I think probably what was stopping me uh, is a little bit that it seemed intimidating in the fact that I really don't know that much about <laughs> Algiers. And uh, this was a good, uh, in a way, it actually was a good 101. It kind of gave me a better understanding of even where to start and what to see. But even then, without knowing that much about the history I, I it was it was still pretty fascinating for me to see this i mean again like i really to me i could see a lot of parallels between what was happening and and what then further ramped up in italy which i know more about uh versus you know talking about like the way that the communists were were uh, operating in the mid-century in italy and and how that turned into bombings and it and, and escalating violence uh, so to me, I was sort of seeing the parallels there. I could see why uh, Ponte Corvo would, was interested in in that regard. Yeah. But the uh, the other thing about this is just, I mean, and this is what I'm sure everyone says about this film, is just that the the acting is amazing and the way that it kind of plays with newsreel style is just yeah. really fascinating to watch. And it never feels, I mean, it you know, it, everything's propaganda, but it never feels like it's hitting you over the head with a very, very specific message, which, of course, is intentional because they are giving you uh, the sort of both sides, as you were saying, of, of what's happening. And no one ever looks like a complete evil brute, even if I would say personally watching this, I, I don't have that much sympathy for the French <laughs> But, yeah. you know, and, and, and that's just it's just interesting to to see the openness about that and just at least bare minimum saying the fact that, you know, nobody here is, you know, a monster and trying to step away from that sort of very easy way to, to dehumanize in the heat of battle. Yeah, let me let me say a few things. I mean, just the, just some key scenes for me, especially in the early part of the film, before you have the paratroopers arrive and there's an early scene where Ali Lapointe, so this the the main figure portrayed as as uh, an everyman, as a street hustler, as a you know somebody who's unemployed, who has very few options, who um, his future is very unclear. You know, there's that scene where he's tripped and you know by this white Frenchman, this who's who looks younger than him actually. And he falls to the ground and, and there's this group of white Frenchmen laughing. And it's just this very racist moment, just treating this Algerian like, like he's just scum, like he, you know, he's somebody who can be easily bullied with impunity, with no repercussions. And then you have Ali Lapointe stand up for himself. You know, he fights him and, you know, there's this fight. And of course, the person who goes to prison is Ali Lapointe, the Algerian. You know, there is no justice for the Algerian. Again, a small moment, but it it speaks, you know, it speaks for the colonial condition. That the, the, When the colonized person fights back, they are arrested and thrown into prison, and that's it. And so, of course, for the rest of the film, you see a quite different story where Algerians, when they come together and fight back, there, there's power in solidarity. And that's that's something that, 
that Pontecorvo builds to. There's another important scene I just want to say very quickly in the prison. It's basically the execution. I don't know if you remember the scene, but there's an execution of a prisoner. Right. And everyone starts uh, chanting, right? Everyone starts chanting. and then, but, but what's interesting to me as well is we don't necessarily see it in graphic detail, but it's a guillotine. That's the form of execution. And what's important here is that, of course, the guillotine is a symbol of the French Revolution. And the French Revolution being this moment of you know, overthrowing the monarchy, creating democracy, the rights of man, you know, and the guillotine being this tool of basically eliminating, you know, the elite, the monarchy. And of course, you know, this is bloody and violent. I'm not minimizing it. But what's interesting to me is that in this instance, in the Battle of Algiers, the guillotine isn't a rev- isn't a symbol of revolution. It's a symbol of counter-revolution. Mm-hmm. The guillotine is suppressing Algerians. It's literally executing Algerians and anti-colonial resistance. And to me, that's another, you know, subtlety that Pontecorvo employs. He's basically saying that France has betrayed its revolutionary principles in its colonies. Freedom and rights are great for the French, but they're not allowed for the colonized. And this is this is a point that Pontecorvo makes. This moment, this execution in the prison is a moment that, you know, really sparks a, a revolutionary spirit with the Algerians, like that's the moment where the it really starts to take off, and Ali Lapointe becomes this you know emblematic figure of you know this this Algerian youth who is uneducated, but he's got this fighting spirit. He's 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 a rebel, and and they're saying you know we see lots of these FLN leaders who are you know educated and have a plan and have the, have a system how they're going to make this revolution work. But it's Ali Lapointe who becomes like the, the spirit of the revolution. And it's, you know, the Pontecorvo seems to say that it's his it's energy that actually, you know, led to the success of of the of the revolution. Yeah, absolutely. I, and it, I mean, to me that, you know, the Ali Lapointe is also, you know, very much a figure, the kind of figure you might see in in I'm thinking of like Rome, Open City and. Is it Paisan, the the World War II film? Mm-hmm. But but basically these these early films in Italian cinema that are about ordinary people. And of course, you know, bicycle thieves, you know, the these, you know, it's again, these to me, these are very Marxist films. I mean, they're they're all about the struggles of ordinary people and, and how they go about, you know, surviving wartime Italy uh, or post-war Italy. And, you know, Pontecorvo is taking that sensibility and applying it to Algeria. You know, again, Ali Lapointe is this everyman. He's a proxy for the audience. You know, we sort of understand what it means to be politicized. You know, how do you get to the point of being this dehumanized, colonized person who's just facing, literally facing the violence of racism, experiencing it? How do you go from that point to being part of a movement, part of a struggle? And I think Pontecorvo, you know, traces that. One other quick thing I'd say too, um, clearly there's a lot to talk about, but Pontecorvo's involvement of women in the film, you know, it's it's women who plant the bombs at the milk, at the milk bar, at the milk cafe that go off and 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 you know kill those French civilians. This is something that Fanon also wrote about, 
how the Algerian Revolution was not necessarily unique, but it was definitely defined by a kind of participation that included both men and women. And that's something that Ponte Corvo gets, gets at as well. And it also, I mean, the way that the participation of the women is portrayed is that religion is important to them, but but freedom and you know being free of the French is is even more important. They'll disguise themselves as Europeans. They'll do whatever they have to do because freedom is is even more important than you know their traditions and religious beliefs. Yeah, I mean, I you know just to jump in, I mean, to me, yes, you have characters and you know people in the background who are clearly Muslim in their faith, but I I, I definitely see this as a secular film. I mean, there, there's some religious element in a cultural sense, but it should be said that, you know, the, the Algerian revolution itself was, for the most part, secular. I mean, it wasn't struggling to establish an Islamic republic. It wasn't trying to establish a new religious order. It wasn't a jihad or anything like that. It was very much a Republican-oriented kind of struggle that is establishing a new state that was free of free of France. And in fact, the, the constitution that was established for post-colonial Algeria recognized the Islamic character and the, the Arab character of Algeria in contrast to its Frenchness. But it, it was a secular state. And the reason why I bring this up is because Algeria in the 1990s, so jumping 30 years, Algeria basically had a, a civil war for about a decade where you had Orthodox Muslims bearing arms and, and seeking to overthrow the state because they didn't see it as Islamic enough. So Algeria is fascinating in that regard, too. It's always sort of struggled with its identity but on the other hand, you know, we see a similar kind of thing in the United States with, you know, certain politicians wanting the U.S. to be more Christian, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, I don't, I don't want listeners to get the idea that, that Algerians were fighting for Islam in any particular way. I think it's more of a, a cultural backdrop. In fact, I would say that Donald Rumsfeld would be the kind of viewer who would say, oh, this is about, you know, the militancy of Islam, when in fact, I, I, I don't think that's Ponte Corvo's point or the point of the Algerian Revolution. I was actually hoping that you could speak to this film's popularity in the United States and what was happening in the late 60s there. It was it was a hit on the on the art house circuit and a lot of anti-war protesters embraced it and, uh, you know, saw themselves in this film. And it also seems like, you know, some of what, uh, you know, the Black Panthers were. Absolutely. Were, you know, the stand that they were taking yeah. was very, you know, related to what was happening in this movie and, and, you know, what Fanon was talking about. Yes. So I should say quickly that Fanon died in 61. His book, when it was published in France, was was banned immediately because it was pro-Algerian and the Algerian conflict was still going on. But having said that, it was quickly translated and translated into English. You know, relatively immediately, Fanon was being read by Black activists in the U.S. One of the key points of The Wretch of the Earth was advocating armed struggle. That's been interpreted in different ways. I mean, and also, frankly, it's a controversial position. But the point is that Fanon articulated a different position from that of, say, Martin Luther King Jr., which was about civil disobedience, which was about nonviolence. And you had a lot of 
young black activists who were not warm to that position. They wanted a more militant activism. And of course, that informed the Black Panthers. So you had, you know, people like, you know, Huey Newton embracing Fanon, embracing a more militant stance against racism in the United States. And this also explains, you know, the popularity of the Battle of Algiers. It was a visualization of the wretched of the earth. And I should say quickly, and this is another fascinating history, but the Black Panthers established a consulate, established a diplomatic mission in Algiers in post-colonial Algeria. Huh. Yeah. So there, there, there are these very strong connections between Algeria and the Black Panthers. And Fanon is a big part of that. I mean, Fanon is a black man fighting for the Algerians. And when I say fighting, I don't mean like bearing arms. I mean, writing political essays. He was a psychiatrist. So um, he did provide medical attention to uh, victims of the Algerian war. And I should say quickly, this also raises complicated questions of how could a psychiatrist and medical doctor advocate armed struggle, advocate violence? And, you know, it, it seems like a paradox. And it is a paradox. And this is something that scholars of Fanon have grappled with. My own take on it is that Fanon didn't promote gratuitous violence. He didn't promote violence in all conditions. He basically saw violence as the only response possible under certain conditions. That is to say, anti-colonial violence was the only option left under conditions of colonial violence. So colonial violence prompted anti-colonial violence. And in a sense, and I, I write this in about this in my book on Fanon, basically Fanon was advocating an anti-violence violence, which I realize sounds really technical and jargony, but to me it captures the kind of violence that Fanon was, was arguing for. He wasn't, again, saying that you know, violence all the time, every time, but saying that, that anti-colonial violence was the only option when facing colonial violence. But again, it's something to be debated and, and talked about. Going back to the Battle of Algiers, it's a good example of anti-violence violence. When Ali Lapointe, you know, faces the violence of the settler when he's tripped, when he's, you know, attacked and he fights back, that moment of fighting back, that is a kind of anti-violence violence. He's fighting against the violence that started with that, you know, white French settler who knocked him to the ground thoughtlessly without even thinking about it that's that's what's so powerful about that moment is yes. that frenchman is not thinking he's doing you know anything of course he you know this this algerian i can trip him i can do whatever i want to him but it's you know it's shocking when it when is. he get you know gets hit back by ali absolutely it's it's a very casual kind of violence which gets to this this point that is to say that colonial violence isn't just about paratroopers it's also about this ordinary, everyday violence that Algerians have to experience, that they have to turn the other cheek. And, you know, Ponte Corvo and, you know, through Ali Lapointe is pointing to how Algerians had enough. They weren't going to accept it anymore. You know, whether it's violence from paratroopers or violence from, you know, the sort of casual, ordinary racism, which is just as, 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 as problematic. 
that that scene where uh, I think that it's like a racetrack that gets bombed, uh, and and you see all these people that are all these French people are crying, and, and they're so miserable, and then suddenly they see one Algerian boy who's working, you know, and and he's an employee of this racetrack, and and he's a, like a little kid, and immediately you see this crowd of of people, white people, who turn to him, point to him, and then start to try and just rip him apart. Yeah, uh, and they literally saying while they while they yell, you know your people did this to us now we're, you're going to get it you know and, yes. and as a symbol and that's such also such a powerful point of just the way that that racism rears its ugly head and and also to even juxtapose that with these scenes of people dying and which you know is it's upsetting yeah. <laughs> the the bombing scenes are are really upsetting just the way that um and it's and it's brilliant for that because you're you're seeing these women very coolly walk through uh sit at a cafe look all of the people around them in the eye, leave a bomb and then walk out, you know? And, and so they, they know exactly there's, there's no, I mean, you're, you have to, of course, have some sort of separation in your head in order to, to do something like that. But there's also this real acknowledgement of the fact that I am doing this to, to, to go after you <laughs> people specifically. But then when you turn around, you see exactly the, the sort of response that it gets. There's no way to, to like judge whether or not this was a good or a bad thing morally especially in the way that that you know the reaction is to to for you know all of these french people to turn around and then try and kill a boy yeah i think on earlier viewings i i definitely was more upset thinking that oh they're killing all of these innocent french people but watching it now i i'm more aligned with the idea that there are no innocent french people here who've settled in algiers exactly i mean that that's exactly the the right point i mean there is no innocence and i think you know another figure that to me haunts the algerian war but but also this film definitely less so than fanon but i he's somebody worth invoking as well as albert camus and you know camus was algerian white algerian and knew the algerian situation and basically, during the 50s, he was already iconic and canonical and had won the Nobel Prize, but he was effectively silenced by the war because he advocated a kind of position that was in between. That is to say, a kind of reconciliation between Algerians and the French. Of course, this reflects his own subject position. That is to say, you know, he was a person who loved Algeria, who identified with Algeria but who was also white. And even though he was working class white, he also was a member of the Communist Party briefly. He couldn't support the FLN in its efforts to decolonize because he also had a very strong attachment to France. And of course, if you read The Stranger, I mean, it's, you know, his most well-known work. It's about a man who thoughtlessly kills an Algerian. I mean, it's often framed as, you know, this absurdist work, which of course it is, but it really is this colonial text. It's, it's, it's again, like this Ali Lapointe situation where, you know, this, this bourgeois French character, this French man who leaves a, a life of leisure and having sex with his girlfriend and going to the beach, you know, kills this Algerian without really thinking about it. And I mean, as, as an, obviously he faces repercussions, he, you know, there's a trial and he's, he's executed, but it's still, you know, that, that book when read from a, a colonial standpoint, it's about how, you know, sort of the impunity of French attitudes towards Algerians, 
on the other hand, you know, you could see Camus as, as critiquing that attitude, but maybe not in a way that's fully satisfying to an Algerian perspective, because, you know, Camus turns it into this philosophical situation as opposed to a colonial one that is unjust to all Algerians. So going to the Battle of Algiers, I think I think one other thing about that film is that it's very much a a critique of there being any kind of reconciliation in the situation, that people are committing acts of violence against each other. You have to pick a side. You can't be in between. Ponte Corvo is playing with the emotions of the audience. You, you, either you're on the side of the French or the, the side of the Algerian. Um, it's a difficult needle to thread, but I think, you know, I mean, I, I will say quickly too, you know, even though to me, Ponte Corvo is very ultimately pro-Algerian, it's not a simple film. It's not a a single-sided film. He's, he's, he's again, you know, as you both have pointed to, you know, the kind of emotion you feel when you see these cafes being, you know, blown up in a very sort of callous way. Yeah. That also invokes not just a sympathy, but a kind of claustrophobia. Like how do you find a way out of this situation? Um, I want to say something quickly, too, actually, and this is something regarding the soundtrack. This goes back to Morricone. For the bombing, there are two bombing scenes. There's a scene where the cafes are bombed, and then there's a scene where the Algerian neighborhood is bombed, and bombed not by the paratroopers, but bombed by basically a group of Pied Noir, French settlers, who drive in with a car late at night and it, there's a scene where, you know, things are blown up and, and so these ordinary Algerians are killed. So it's a reprisal killing. But the music, the same music is played for both scenes. Hmm. There's a there's an attempt to use the soundtrack to, you know, connect those scenes of um, civilians dying in both instances. And we should recognize that. So So we could talk for another hour about the Battle of Algiers. It's such a rich film. And uh, and when I first brought up the idea of talking about this film to you, Chris, you said, yes, but I'd also like to talk about it, you know, connecting it to the film, uh, Usman Semben's film, Black Girl. Great, that sounds awesome, but will we have time to to talk about both films? We don't have much time left to talk, but do you have a uh, you know any quick points that you want to make comparing the two films? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, each of these films obviously can be spoken about at length, but just to say that, I mean, Usman Sembain was a Senegalese filmmaker, which is to say that he grew up under. Um, French colonial rule. So the to me the the connection between both films are how they uh, address French colonialism and the legacies of French colonialism. The difference, I mean, one difference obviously is Ponte Corvo is Italian, Simbane is Senegalese, uh, but also Black Girl is a very different film in terms of scale, in terms of plot, in terms of messaging. It's it's really interesting to juxtapose both films. I think I think both both films are very powerful in different ways, despite the contrast in in terms of scale 
in terms of characterization and so forth. But Ali Lapointe, you know, is this Algerian man. Joanna, the young Senegalese woman who goes to work for this French uh, family in Antibes, she also plays a very similar role in terms of, uh, you know, being this person who is specific, but also, you know, stands in for many people. And I mean, you could say the Senegalese and, and African women more generally. And, you know, by virtue of that, you know, the black girl also becomes very allegorical and a kind of uh, story of, of what colonial racism is about, that, that colonial racism isn't simply about the violence of soldiers or the segregation of cities like Algiers, but racism also happens in these intimate spaces of domestic relationships, of relationships of employment. Well, the, the, um, the end of colonialism in, in Senegal was, a, it's a, you know, they gained their independence more peacefully, yes. right? The, the, the French left willingly. So, mm-hmm. you know, the two contexts are, you know, kind of to contrast the, the style of both movies, you know, makes a lot of sense in that context. And we should just say really quickly that the plot of Black Girl, um, which also came out in 1966, so that's the same year as Battle of Algiers, this young woman, Joanna, who joins up a family who is um, French, she joins them in France in order to become a maid, basically to do housework and watch their children. And it's nothing like she thought it was going to be, you know, they show her life uh, in Senegal and then they show her life in France and the way that they treated her when they, she was working for them in Africa, like they were much nicer to her. She had her own life. And then when the second they brought her to France, suddenly she essentially became a slave in their household. And the, um, you know, the, the mother of this house is shown as especially nasty to her and really treats her uh, like her own personal slave. Um, it's a short film. It is, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's based on an actual news story that Sembene wanted to explore. And, and I, I, I don't know that he, I, I, my understanding was that he maybe, it, this is his imagination of what this, what would have happened uh, for this woman. I, I think so, yes. Yeah, and, and, and it's it's a powerful uh, and, and great film, especially for 60 Minutes. And I don't know, and, and really quickly, do you have you guys seen the movie Nanny, which came out in 2022? No. no. It's a new movie. It's exa- it has pretty much the same plot. <laughs> no. uh, it was directed by uh, Nick Yatu uh, Yusu, and it's about a uh, woman from Senegal who joins up with a rich Manhattan family. And it's based, it was inspired uh, by that story that happened not too long ago where a, um, a nanny murdered both of the children in her care. And that's not the plot of, of this movie, but it was uh, the inciting incident um, where uh, this filmmaker also, she went back and, and decided to think of her own version of this with with a, a different woman but um but yeah no i mean it was it was this was great to watch yeah i'll, I'll definitely look it up i mean I, if i could jump in i mean i i just wanted to bring up the ending of both films i mean again the just to talk about the parallels i think again ali lapointe being this algerian man kind of an everyman juana being the senegalese a young senegalese woman also representative um, and they both have similar fates. Their tragic endings to both of these films 
on the other hand, which I think are clearly commentaries on the nature of colonialism, that that is to say that you know the violence of colonialism, the the dehumanization of colonialism can be overwhelming, can be too much. On the other hand, the final moments of each film do give the viewer a way out. In in discussing the final moments, I don't think it actually gives away the ending necessarily in these instances. But in the case of the Battle of Algiers, you know, the actual Battle of Algiers ends in 57. And again, the Algerian Revolution doesn't end. Independence doesn't come until 62. So you have another five years of ongoing conflict. The end of the film, The Battle of Algiers, you have this crowd in the street and you have, you know, people, you know, you have women confronting tanks, confronting soldiers. And it's an extremely powerful ending because it captures the nature of the revolution. You know, the people is hero. It's not about a single person. It's about the people being a hero. In the case of Black Girl, it's different, but you still get a social perspective. You have the employer of Juana going back to Senegal and him confronting Senegalese society and basically being scared away. You, you have a sense of Senegalese society and Senegalese people being powerful and scaring him, and he flees. And I think that that is also, you know, a clear messaging on, on Simbane's part. I should say quickly, too, you know, something about Simbane's biography. I mean, he was also a communist, member of the Communist Party. He studied filmmaking in the Soviet Union for a year. He was a novelist. In some ways, depending on the audience, um, some people know him better as a novelist. He wrote this, his first novel was this fabulous book called God's Bits of Wood, which is basically about a railway strike in West Africa that he participated in shortly after the end of the Second World War. Um, and it's very much about, you know, trade unionism and the people as hero. And so, again, there's this element of positioning certain characters, but also pointing to a broader society that provides a kind of uplift or a kind of, what I want to say, just a kind of source of strength for overcoming political difficulty. Well, both of these movies end that way. I mean, they yeah. they end in tragedy, but the you know the final moments of this of both films are the strength that's been found yeah. within this tragedy, this spirit of rebelliousness, this this acknowledgement that yes, we 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 can fight the oppressors, we can you know yeah. we we can succeed, and you've hurt us badly, but we can come back stronger than ever and uh yeah make life better for ourselves make uh you know show 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 the french that that we have the strength to be independent to do our own thing to not be oppressed to be put down to thought of as lesser so yeah i i would simply add that you know the colonel in the battle of algiers you know he talks about cutting off the head to destroy the the fln you have to eventually find the head cell and and destroy it and in, in effect that's what they do but it's 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 very hard to crush the will of the people. And that's what the French could not do. And I think that's also the messaging of, of Saint-Bain and, and Black Girl, that yes, you have this, this one person who has a tragic fate, but you, you can't crush the will of the Senegalese people. And that's another important part of that film. I should say, you know, one thing I want to, a few things I want to say about Black Girl you know, it's it's very much a domestic film. I mean, much of the film takes place in an apartment. 
I should say quickly too that the French characters, the 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 madame and the monsieur who employ her, employ Joanna. I mean, they're actually supposed to be liberal white French people. You know, they're they're not like you know racist colonial oppressors. They don't see themselves that way. You know, they see themselves as very progressive because they have this Senegalese woman taking care of their children and how multicultural that is. And you know, there's that framing there that I, I, I think shouldn't get lost. But that's precisely the irony that, that Simbain is getting at, that in fact, even among you know, progressive white French people, that they hold these you know, very disparaging racist views and classist views. This is, this is also a very important part of the film, that, that, that Simbain is, is not just critiquing the French generally or... or or critiquing, you know, openly racist French, you know, colonists, but he's actually critiquing white French men and women who pride themselves on being progressive, when in practice, they're not at all. I, I love that scene of them having dinner where they're, you know, they praise her cooking. Oh, she's so wonderful. And, yes. and this this dish that they also claim to be African, where um, it sounds like Joanna doesn't even know what that why they want this dish but then uh in the, in the same breath they're saying things like you know oh she doesn't speak french but she understands it instinctively like an animal and all these yeah. like really horribly creepy yeah. casual racist lines yeah and 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 i think this is also where the mask is an important symbol in the film the mask works it it, it means different things i mean it it's sort of as this artifact you know, souvenir that they bring back from Senegal because this white couple had lived in Senegal briefly and had employed Joanna there. But it also is, you know, a symbol of how people wear masks, that, that you know, the French might have this progressive mask, you know, this, this, this you know, public face of quality and conviviality. But, but once that mask is removed, you know, they're just as racist, they're just as problematic as they've always been. I think there's also the mask in the sense of, you know, Joanna having to wear a mask in front of this white French couple. Like we, she becomes burdened by that. She has to perform a certain way and she can't reveal herself. She can't live her life fully because she's constantly having to wear this African domestic worker mask. And then the mask plays a role at the very end too, in the final moments where um, in that instance with the boy, one quick thing too, I, I don't know if you've seen, Bain is in the film too. I don't know if you noticed him, but he's the older man with the pipe. Um, Simbain has a very distinctive look. He always had a pipe, but anyway, he's in the film. But there's that, the final moments with the boy wearing the mask. And I think that is also a moment where Simbain is sort of saying that, you know, the French think they understand the Senegalese. The French think they know the quote unquote African mind, but they never will that there's a kind of spirit, that there's a kind of, again, it goes back to this, this idea that you can't crush the will of the people. You can't crush the will of the Senegalese. And maybe that's glorifying things a bit, but I feel like that's an aspect of Simbain's work as well, that he's sort of pushing back against the idea that the French, as a colonial power, knows everything about the Senegalese. He's, he's in other words, with this very film, you know, creating a space for um, Senegalese self-knowledge and by extension, African self-knowledge that's positioned against a kind of colonial knowledge or a kind of 
you know, French knowledge about Africa. And I think, I think the mask also plays with this. I should say quickly too, you know, Fanon wrote about his first book was called Black Skin, White Masks. And it's, it's, he, he uses, he also uses the mask motif in different ways in that work. And Fanon wrote in French, being from Martinique, of course. And so, you know, Sembain, I'm sure, drew from Fanon. This is another reason why I think of these two films together. There's just such a, for me at least, a, such a strong Fanonian element to both films. I should say quickly that Black Skin, White Masks and The Wretched of the Earth are, are quite different books with different sets of politics, but nonetheless point to Fanon's evolution in his thinking. And it's just interesting to me to see these two different films addressing colonialism in two different ways. And to my mind, drawing on Fanon's two different books, the ideas of these books to, 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 to make critiques of, of the French. Well, we've just about run out of time here. I wish we could talk about Black Girl a little bit more. I think we only just scratched the surface of, of what's, you know, a seemingly slight movie that has really is, is it, it goes very deep and a lot of it is, is played out on this allegorical level, but uh it was great having you on. I love talking to you about this stuff. If I could just say one quick thing about Simbane's films, certainly I encourage listeners to watch Black Girl. It's also very interesting to note that Simbane, after this first film, he always had strong female characters. Um, it's a noted aspect of his films that the main protagonist is a woman. And, you know, this goes up to the end of his of his filmography. In truth, I, I you know, I'm not quite sure why that is. I mean, certainly it's a reflection of his politics, but I, I just don't know the specific reasons for that. But it's it is noteworthy about his work. The other quick thing I'd say about the Battle of Algiers, just to bring out a point that you and I discussed, Bart, but a lot of film of the 1960s, particularly French film, is haunted by the Algerian War. And even though the Battle of Algiers is technically an Italian film, um, I think it is symbolic of, of that haunting. And just to say that I hope listeners will maybe think about that when they watch French film, whether it's, what were the films that we, we brought up? Like, like the Umbrella. Away from Five to Seven and Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Yes. There's, there's always a character. Petit Soldat. Yes. I mean, that's definitely political, but there's always a character who, you know, it's connected to Algeria and, and, it, and, you know, it's similar to eighties, you know, American eighties films with Vietnam, you know, also, and, and late seventies also casting a shadow and there's like a return veteran or, you know, there's an interesting parallel there to be talked about. Anyway, obviously I could keep going. It's, it's, it's been exciting. So thank you so much for, for having me. This was awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. I got a, a good history lesson because I'm I, like most Americans. My my African uh, history knowledge is pretty crummy. So <laughs> you you're inspiring me to to branch out of my comfort zone. Well, thank you. Yeah, there's a lot that you dropped on us here, and it's uh, and it definitely informs the both of these films in uh, you know in ways that I didn't you know didn't even imagine. And I've seen both of them before, but you've definitely enriched them for me. Well, they're definitely great films. I, I hope if I hope your listeners, if they haven't seen them, really commit time to to watching them. They're in different ways, both life changing films or potentially life changing films. Definitely peak moments in nineteen sixties cinema. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.
You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.